And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolfon, the long-abandoned, much-delayed, kind of slate, Coot Street Podcast! And we, we want to explain to our listeners that the reason um, we've, we've been off the air for the last several weeks is that we didn't record any podcast for no good reason. <laughs> we just were... <laughs> We were just completely derelict in our duties, and, uh, and and we apologize to those people who are listening to us now who have had a month's vacation without asking. That, yeah, yeah, I guess that's it. I mean, we, we, we could claim that I was injured, Gary. I mean, I did hurt my arm and, you know, constant pain, all that. Don't feel totally like, yeah, no, you're right. We just, we just didn't get to it. We talked, but we didn't podcast. No, we didn't. We talked a lot, and we, we could have recorded those no, things. No, we could I not have. have. Think back for well, a second. That truth is that we really could not have shared with the world at all. Well, that's that's absolutely true. This is this is one of the things which people have. Uh, I would like to say people ask me about this at bars, but I don't see people at bars ever again. Uh, is what do you guys really talk about when you're not worried about people listening to you? And do you say horrible things about people? Sure. And generally, well, no. Yes, but only people that we know and not necessarily gossip. And uh, I don't know what goes on in the gossip world except what it shows up on Twitter or what floats to the surface on Facebook or when somebody is outraged at something. And then it's usually too late to be outraged because that outrage was 17 hours ago and it's the world has moved on. Yeah, I mean, the way I'd put it is, I mean, there are some things that we discuss when we are off the air that are genuinely confidential and not ours to talk about. They may or may not be of interest or relevance at all to anybody else, but they're still confidential. Then there's stuff where it's just like, honestly, two people going, do you really have anything to talk about this week? No, I don't know. What's happening with you? I've been hanging out and doing this. So it's just kind of almost a podcast without being the podcast. And then there's just a bit of other stuff. Well, we do have signs of the world coming back alive this time around. I mean, a lot of people I know, including myself and, and my partner, Dale, have had both of our COVID shots. Uh, people that I know and that you know are planning on attending the physical, in-person, actual hotel-oriented world fantasy uh, convention in, in Montreal this fall. It's, it's the first convention that I would normally go to that is actually committed to saying, we have a hotel, and we're going to put people in it. Wow, they haven't quite said seven that, months. Gary. They haven't quite said that. Well, They've said, we currently absolutely expect to be able to run an in-person convention. This is the Montreal World Fantasy Convention being run in the first week of November. Mm-hmm. And look, once upon a time, I thought that it was a no-brainer we would be there. I've said so on the podcast. I mean, I, I look back. I bought my membership to Montreal back in May of 2020 when November of 2021 seemed a billion years away, and we're sure to be somewhere we could all gather in the bar. Now, well, like we said yesterday when we were, were chatting on one of those out-of-session podcasts, and it does more conversations, and it does run into this. I think Canadians in, living in, uh, in around Montreal and towards the Northeast will be able to attend world fantasy without any difficulty. I think most likely uh, United States citizens living in the Northeast will be able to attend an in-person convention. I suspect, given the surprisingly excellent rates of vaccination happening in the United States at the moment, many U.S. citizens should be able to attend. So I think it'll go ahead. I think for everybody from around the world, actual international people, I think that's a whole other box of dice, and I think that's very. Oh, I don't think I don't expect it to be a, a large convention at all. Um, 
my sense is that the the next large convention, the next classically large convention, will probably be the Chicago WorldCon next year. Yeah, well, yeah, could could do. I mean, everyone's looking for the next. Well, not everyone. The people I talk to are looking for the next one. And there's like, will it be Montreal? Now, Montreal could be great if enough people commit to go. I can't commit to go till at least September, I reckon, uh, and I probably won't. But you know, I'll, it'll be then when I'll decide. Um, I think ICFA will be a kickoff and should, I mean, ICFA 2022 should be a live event or something's really not working terribly. In fact, if ICFA 22 is not live, everything else we say should be taken with a pinch of salt. But yeah, I would have thought the DC and wherever they happen to hold the theoretical 22 World Fantasy, because they haven't mentioned any venues yet, would also go ahead. So we none of us have any idea where the... Uh... 2022 world fantasy might be held even though almost always by now we would have next year's venue it's only a year and a half away i think so so a shout out to ellen datlow and our world fantasy pals if you want to let us know we'd be happy to talk about places where they might be holding world fantasy in 2022 because we 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 frankly we are looking to travel it's been a long time since we hit a convention bar and i think we're all thirsty for that i've well i've actually having had both vaccines actually gone out to restaurants and bars and it's a very nice feeling the only thing is you're not there my pals are not there uh i i can't the there's not a a, a table full of people that i know i want to avoid because those are the people i avoid at every convention and here are my pals over here and here's my one pal in a room in, in, in a table full of awful people and that one pal wants to be rescued so i have to go over and pretend there's an emergency all the fun things that you do in bars at, at cons uh, are, are what I miss. And to be honest, there are some very interesting readings and panels, uh, most of which I don't go to. But if I go to one that I think is going to be pretty good, it's generally pretty good. Yeah, it's uh, been so long, Gary. I, think I got out of there. I don't remember the last it's, it's, I don't, convention I don't that I went to. But the one thing about World Fantasy we can all talk about is that the nominations are now open for the public voted segment of the ballot. Yes. Which is something that is only World Fantasy that does That's correct. This. Uh, there's a jury. You've been on the jury. I've been on the jury. Um, the jury. There, there are like five positions on the ballot or something. Two of which are voted on by the membership of the convention or the membership of the previous year's convention. Yes. I sound legalistic. Boy, I sound like I know well, what I'm saying. You sound like there's far more rules to this world fantasy thing than I think there really ever are. You know. Well, the, the, but here's here, here's the catch. You cannot win a, furl, a world fantasy award. By popular vote. No, you can't. The popular vote can only put you on the ballot, at which time the jury or the judges yeah. uh, make a determination. That's correct. I mean, you put your the, the the voters put their two items on the list, and either the judges will look and go, huh, we didn't actually consider that. Let's give that an award. Or they'll go, look what they did. It's going to be obvious who did what here. Let's get on with our job and pretend that didn't happen. Or, or to be a little bit more cynical, although this did not happen with the with the group of judges I was with. Uh, I heard it happen the previous year that there are very popular writers that always win a popular vote, even though they may not technically be eligible for the award. And I've, I've heard that judges would say something like, they're not going to push me around. I am I, I am not subject to the whims of the crowd. I'm going to find my own candidates to win these awards. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, there is that feeling that when you come in, I think at the very beginning, that you're looking to make your contribution and your mark, right? You're looking to look at all the work that you're sent, hopefully find something yourself. I mean, I, I very much felt when I was a judge for the World Fantasy Awards, that it was important to ha- make a contribution to bring new things into what the other 
judges could consider to say like, hey, look at this thing you might have overlooked. Look at that thing you wouldn't be aware of and get it shared yeah, with them. I, I, I did the same thing. And that's, that's, that's a very good feeling when you find something uh, for a committee that, uh, uh, that they, they had not been aware of and that they fall in love with. I don't know if that happened with my role. It happened one year when I was a judge of the Tip Tree Award. Mm-hmm. And I brought, brought their attention to a book. I can mention what it was. I don't think anybody would argue. Uh, brought their attention to Caitlin Kernan's The Drowning Girl. Yeah. Uh, and Caitlin Kernan is not a, 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 an excellent writer, but possibly not the writer that uh, that the Wisconsin crowd normally reads, uh, because she was regarded widely as a horror writer at that time. But The Drowning Girl was a brilliant novel, and once everybody saw it, it was it was not a difficult decision to make. Not at all. I mean, that's uh, I don't know if that's why I read the book at winning uh, the World Fantasy, but certainly I went on, and it is a spectacular book. And you know. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing making that transition across your life if you become involved in the field to go from being a reader who looks at the announced nominations and winners as a reading list things to look for and things to be aware of and historically the world fantasy award even though it has a strong dark fantasy horror leaning has always been a good source of recommendations for things to read particularly if we're not talking about epic fantasy because the world fantasy awards for whatever reasons historically doesn't connect with epic fantasy particularly well right i think that's fair i think that's true. you then make that art that, that move to someone who's then following the nominations as they're announced and then to someone who's maybe a member of the convention and can nominate and that's a whole other thing and that's what we'll talk about in a minute what we're talking about. and then of course to someone who's actually there in the room when some older person makes a very 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 long speech while you wait to see who gets to win Mm-hmm. So let's start at the top of the ballot, well, what I'm going to call the top of the ballot or outside the ballot in many ways, and that's one where, because of when you started thinking about it this morning, was the nominations for the Life Achievement Award. There are two big Life Achievement Awards in the field, arguably. There's the uh, mm-hmm. SFWA Damon Knight Grand Master Award, uh, which, I think this, which I know this year has gone to Nalo Hopkinson. And then you know, mm-hmm. we now have the Life Achievement Rights, which actually has a few rules, right? It must be over 62 years of age, um, and it can only go to like a single individual one time. So you can't sit there and go, well, Michael Moorcock's been writing for 100 years. Let's give him nine of these. So my out-of-the-box nomination, as it has been for some years in my long-running, unsuccessful-to-date campaign, Howard Waldrop. Although Howard Waldrop's last decade or so of writing has been minimal, and arguably his greatest achievements happened in the 80s and 90s, I strongly believe he is deeply worthy of a Life Achievement Award, and I I will be nominating him, and I genuinely hope other people will join along too. If you've not read Howard and at I this point, then you should go out and maybe try some I, stories I, I online. Could, I could not agree with you. I, I could not agree with you more in, in terms of uh, a dozen classic stories. Uh, the what, I, what novels have I read of his besides a dozen tough jobs, which was a lot of fun. But I think his short fiction is really. Uh, classic. Howard really only ever and, wrote uh, one novel, Them Bones, which came p- as part of Terry Carr's Ace Science Fiction Specials. Mm-hmm. He also co-wrote an er- an earlier novel with Jake Saunders called The Texas Israeli War, nineteen ninety nine. Oh yeah, a dozen, I totally forgot. Yeah, a dozen tough jobs is a novella that came out from Zeising. It was published as a book. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is why it was a book. Uh, Keep in mind that the one award that I manage is an award for a book, so we don't make a distinction between novels and novellas. But the, the problem with Howard is this. 
uh, the early years of the World Fantasy Award, there was a lot of looking back on uh, catching up with people who whose careers had been uh, had been decades earlier. I mean, early awards going to people like Fritz Leiber, for example. No one would ever have argued that Fritz Leiber uh, didn't clearly deserve the award, although his career was, you know, in its twilight. But the voters on the award and the judges had to know enough about the history of the field. They had to know enough about the classic stories in the field. Uh, to some extent, they may have gone further than I would have in awarding uh, vintage classic age writers. I mean, I'd read a few stories by Hugh B. Cave, um, but I'm not sure I would consider him a, a master of, of fantasy. My point about this in terms of Waldrop is that you have to have people who have at least seen enough Waldrop fiction. Uh, it's, it's, it used to be in anthologies a lot. It doesn't show up in anthologies that much anymore because there aren't that many historical anthologies around anymore. No, there's not. And he hasn't written much new short fiction in the last 15 years. And so you drift away from people's awareness. That's why a juried award is the place for this, this to happen. You know, you can't fix it up. But I mean, if you are thinking, if you're a member of the Montreal World Fantasy Convention and you're thinking about nominating, you can go online. You can read any one of us a batch of short stories like Ugly Chickens, like Mary, uh, Margaret Mary, Road Grader, a bunch of other stories. And it's worth doing so because it will give you some perspective on why. There's also a couple of very good retrospective uh, short story collections published by Mike Walsh's Old Earth Books that will give you an idea. Um, but who else do you have, Gary? Do you right. have other people in mind for the, the – I, I, went, I went through a list of people who I believe are eligible who I had not thought were eligible because of, of the 62-year-old thing. There, are, I mean, I, I suspect there's no doubt in my mind that the, the minute he turns 62, uh, Neil Gaiman will – will get a Lifetime Achievement Award. I think he's only 60 this year. Um, I think the only award, I'm not sure of this, but I know that they did ignore the 62 rule when they gave the award to Stephen King, but that was a long time ago. Um, okay, some people who, uh, who, are, who who meet the age requirement. First of all, there are people you don't always think of that are not necessarily authors. One name that comes to mind is Beth Meacham, who mm. is a classic editor who's been around, edited some of the classic books in the field, recently retired. Um, and, uh, editors as uh, not sucking up to my podcast partner here, but editors don't get as much respect as they sometimes deserve. Um, Ellen Dadlow does have a world fantasy award for, for, for life achievement. And, uh, I think she does. Yes, yeah, she, yeah, does. She, does, she does. Um, then there are, uh, artists occasionally. Charlie, Charles Vess is now 69, I believe, or something. Like that. Um, and, uh, there are writers who are not thought of as being necessarily in the field because they're not in the community. One writer who I think is arguably one of the most influential fantasists among other writers that I know is Daniel Pinkwater, mm -hmm. who is almost 80. Yep. Um, and again, mostly known for children's literature. Some of his things could be called science fiction. Most of it is unclassifiable Pinkwater stuff, but you can look at... Uh, writers from, uh, I don't, from uh, Charlie Jane Anders is one who comes to mind who's, 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 who's mentioned Pinkwater, but the number of writers that I've talked to who uh, just wanted to be able to do what he does. Uh, and his name comes up because there are a handful of writers at the upper end of not eligibility, but who are just frankly getting old. Um, so Charles Vest comes to mind. I, Waldrop is on my list. Younger writers uh, who uh, are well, not younger, but uh, Elizabeth Hand is over 62, it turns out. 
Liz, I've known for years, and she's always seemed to me to be sort of a glamorous 40-ish something. Well, she's old enough to get a World Fantasy Award now. Well, I guess that's, the only thing I say about Elizabeth Hand, who's a deeply deserved one, is she's, she appears to be in robust good health, and there are some older people who, 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 who maybe should get looked at. Wasn't they? Okay, okay. He, but he, here's my classic story about that, and it always comes up. Uh, yes, young, healthy, uh, uh, productive people uh, will eventually get the award. My classic example of a writer who almost inevitably would have gotten the award had he not died so young was Robert Holstock. Yep, sure. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, he, he, he never reached 62. He never became a, uh, eligible, I don't I think. Would, I would completely agree with you. And in fact, you know, regularly he crosses my mind you know, as a writer of merit who could have been recognized more and whose work was, is missed, the work he would have done had he but lived longer. I've got uh, Graham Joyce is another one. Yes, I've got one uh, for you but, for life achievement. Okay, M. John Harrison, age seventy-five. M. John Harrison happens to be on my list as well, and uh, an, an, another similarly. We're making these people sound as though they're feeble, but but Mike Harrison, we've had him on the podcast. He's absolutely doing some of his best work ever. As is Christopher Priest, who's more or less in the same yeah. age range. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that comes to my mind about world fantasy is. I sense there's not a bias, but there's a tendency to lean away from science fiction in the award. Well, that's because it's um, a fantasy award, Gary. It's a fantasy award, but it's gone to people who've written a good deal of science fiction. I would say that it's actually point, an eliminating point, point is, is you point, shouldn't take their science fiction into account. Well, uh, all right. Then, then that creates a problem for a lot of people with Christopher Priest, who's archipelago may be science fiction, it may be a planet, it may be a fantasy world. It's a literary construct. See, and the same thing's true with some of M. John Harrison's. Well, but Mike gets in on uh, Viriconium, which is plainly fantasy. Mm, that's true. So there's, there's that, that raises the question, if you've produced one or two classic works of fantasy, even though you've gone on to betray the field and become an <laughs> SF writer, uh, you're, you're, you're still forgiven. I don't betray the thing, but this is the uh, okay, World somebody, Fantasy Life Achievement Award. That's a fair goal. Okay. But the, my point is you ought not to disqualify yourself from a fantasy award because you've written a lot of science fiction. Oh, no. You just have to – Another re- case in point. You just have to re- have written uh, enough you know, uh, major so- fantasy to, to, to qualify. The science fiction is not relevant. So when you consider, say, Paul Anderson, who died before he could receive the award, unfortunately, he would have been getting in on the major works of fantasy, not the science fiction that he happened to have written. Same for Gordon R. Dixon or someone like that. Well, that's true, and uh, but I think I think that distinction back in the days when Gordon R. Dixon decided to write fantasy late in his career, it seems to me that the choice between science fiction and fantasy was much more of a choice then than it has been. Now, this Case is why I'll fight point, you, somebody Gary. else. I'll fight you. This is why. Okay, no, this is why Greg Bear case... should get the Damon Knight Life uh, Award from Sifwa, but should not get the World Fantasy Award Life Achievement. Because although he wrote a couple of good fantasy novels, he's primarily overwhelmingly a science fiction writer. That's true. He's got a lot of good fantasy short fiction. A friend of mine is writing an article about Greg Bear's gothic fiction now, which I hadn't thought about. And I started looking at his stories, and there's a lot of stuff there. Yeah. Anyway. But my example of of somebody who also, I'm pretty sure, is qualified age-wise, but who is he science fiction or fantasy or both at the same time is Michael Swanwick. Oh, now that's much more interesting than it would have been a while ago. I mean, in the sense that you've got the Iron Dragon Daughter trilogy, which is right. science fantasy-ish. He's written a lot of fantasy at short length. He absolutely has. Mm-hmm. I would say he would make a, a, a very solid um, 
candidate for the Life Achievement Award in fantasy, frankly. Though he's maybe slightly more Sunshine Award, but yeah, yeah, yeah. What about Tim Powers? Oh yeah, surely he must get it. If he's, if he's not get, gotten it, he should get it at some point in the next while. Well, here's the thing. The thing that occurred to me, well, and this happened when I was a judge, and there were people I didn't think of. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the names that came up, I think that uh, I, I, I didn't think of as a candidate was Jane Yolen. And the reason I didn't think of Jane Yolen as a candidate was because I assumed she had one. Of course she had one. And I think one of the things that goes on with Tim Powers, who is... It's, 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 there, there, there's a classic uh, whole kind of subgenre uh, which which he owns, and I think a lot of people are assuming kind of what uh, you and I might halfway have been assuming, which that doesn't he have one yet? No, what I'd assumed is actually isn't he still a, a whisker young for it? When of course he's not. He's not. No, he's been around. Uh, this is what I mean about people. People grow old. Well, people become 62 every year. Well, a lot of them. I understand that. What about somebody like Stephen R. Donaldson? Stephen R. Donaldson is um, another name that comes up. I think I think you mentioned earlier when we were in discussion that the World Fantasy Award has tended to move away from large-scale serious fantasies, and I think it has done that. Uh, and I think that – but but Donaldson's work was enormously influential uh, uh, during that period when – uh, Terry Brooks and other and writers. Terry were, Brooks is a life achievement recipient, and if Terry Brooks is a life life achievement re- recipient, and I certainly don't argue with that he should have been, uh, then surely by any rational measure, Stephen R. Donaldson, uh, Remedy Feist, uh, Jenny Wirtz, they should all be very much in that fr- the frame for, for a life achievement. And, uh, and and I've got a couple of other names on my list. One is uh, James Morrill, mm-hmm. fantastic Again, writer, a long career, terrific writer. Some of his stuff could be considered science fiction, but so much of it is essentially philosophical fiction that it's it's dependent on religious and it, it's satirical. It's tremendous, and his short fiction I got I, the honor to write the introduction to his retrospective short. I didn't know his short fiction that much, but he's a terrific fantasy writer at all lengths. Absolutely, his Bible stories for adult stories are fantastic. Novels like Only Begotten Bo- Daughter are, are phenomenal books. So yeah, absolutely, completely on board with that. And of Go ahead. I was just saying, uh, can I okay, point there, out, lots of old mm-hmm. white guys, Gary. I know. Uh, that's one of the things I was thinking about when I was coming up with I, – I didn't systematically do this. I was actually looking at things I'd reviewed in the last five years mm-hmm, or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I realized that, 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 that Liz Hand is now of an age. Uh, I don't know if Liz Williams is or not, but again, her uh, some of her early stuff was science fiction, but largely fantasy. Gwyneth Jones – some fantasy, but primarily people are going to see her as a science fiction. I think so. I mean, it depends how you look at the Boulders Love series. Right, exactly. And, and I mean, she has won um, the World Fantasy Award for her short fiction, certainly. And one other friend of ours who might be especially relevant this year, except I'm, I'm sure he must be 62. Guy Gabriel K must be 62, mustn't he? Uh, well, I don't know that he must be. That's a bit of a... But I think he... Well, well let me put it this way. I, Guy is 66. Okay, so uh, again... Somebody who's sort of nailed a whole area of fantasy as his own. I've got one for you, since it turns out to my surprise that he does not have it. Samuel R. Delaney. Really? Yes. Huh. And I guess it comes down to Nevriona, doesn't it? Because that, that's his work of fantasy, overwhelmingly. It, it, it comes down to that at, uh, at, at novel length. Uh, the, the, there's a fair amount of short fiction, including some fairly recent short fiction that's uh, pretty clearly fantasy. So, in fact, I would suggest that Samuel R. Delaney would be a... Candidate. I think he'd be. 
Well, I, I guess one of the things is what life achievement means. It means have you written a bunch of important fantasies? Have you had a career which has arguably changed the direction of fantasy or influenced fantasy in some significant way? And there's no doubt that, in my mind, that Delaney is one of the most influential writers of the fantastic uh, who, who's still alive in all kinds of ways. Absolutely. Um, couldn't, couldn't agree more. It, but um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's very difficult to go through to, to not have a list to go through and try to think of people that you know about who deserve the sort of thing or who might overlook it. I don't know enough filmmakers, for example. I do know that uh, I think it was my committee who first brought Miyazaki to the attention of mm-hmm. the world fantasy. And Miyazaki eventually got one. Um, are there other? Should John Carpenter be considered? <laughs> yes. But, but should C.J. Cherry? Should C.J. Cherry? Again, should Ellen C.J. Cherry... Uh, Kushner, I think, is a good candidate. Yeah. What about Cherry? Well, I mean, I, I put Cherry kind of in the uh, same general category as I'd put um, somebody who, well, Lo- Lois Bujold, who's written a, a fair amount of fantasy. She has now, yes, absolutely. Uh, they're, they're a fantasy series. but And again, I think when most people think of Cherry or Bujold, the first thing they think of is science fiction. I think that's but fair. But then. When you, when you look at that, well, we had a book on uh, Bujold that uh, yes. was, was was done by Edward James for my series. And I was, I, I'd was read Bujold's science fiction. I didn't know she'd written that much fantasy, but there was a fair amount of it there, which I first learned about then. Um, and it's, it's one of the archetypal winners of the award, of course, is Andre Norton, whose career was very much like that. It was purely a science fiction career until late in her career with the fairly late with the witch world novels. And uh, she became a fantasy writer. But uh, if, if you'd ask anybody back in the 1950s or sixties, what kind of a writer Andre Norton was, they would have said science fiction. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, I th- so is, is this something that happens with women writers more than men yeah. that, well, that, that, that there is a substantial fantasy component, sometimes mid to late career uh, after having established a really stellar reputation like Bujold and Cherry and Norton had uh, as science fiction writers. Well, I don't know if that means anything. Maybe. I mean, I do think that maybe you and I read the way we read, and it's entirely possible we're overlooking people who we should consider. But also, there's that thing with life achievement. Like, are you talking about the biggest, most prominent names, or are you talking about people who made a significant contribution? And who are you overlooking when you, when they're not necessarily the biggest names? I mean, if you're overlooking a... Suzette Hayden Elgin, for example, or Susie McKee Charnas, who you might have not immediately right. have thought of, you know. And then, of course, there are those who've already got the awards, and that's why I'm not saying mentioning someone like Sherry Tepper or whatever else. But okay, if we well, say the away, Sherry Tepper so, yeah. award, is, I was going to say the Sherry Tepper award is another example of somebody who fairly late in her career turned to fantasy. Um, and uh, no, well, that's actually, it's not, not true. true. First, that's not true her, at all. Her first novels were all fantasy, and then she turned to science fiction. Then she turned more or less back to fantasy. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's, that's reasonably so. Okay, so anyway, King's Blood. That, that's the life achievement thing. We, we, we've got we've got until May to work this out. So I don't know whether we'll come back to it. I'm not. We do it every year anyway, every year or two. Come in and sit here and go. Well. So I've, I'm very aware of look, looking for a, a variety. I mean, when you allow some of the people who've not got awards, Robin McKinley never got has, doesn't have a life achievement award in uh, fantasy. The world for the world fantasy, you'd have thought she she, she would have. Um, I would think so. I know. Yeah. Uh, and there are I, I'm, many others, and some are like almost there. It's like uh, Susanna Clark is nearly old enough, which would be an interesting question. And segues into the year mm-hmm. in fantasy, 
of which I'm a poor judge for a couple of reasons, and what might make it onto your main ballot. Now, my main ballot, like yours, I'm going to guess at the moment, if you've started, is a sketch. You're looking to remember what mine is finished. Uh, I, I printed mine out. I mean, I, I have the PDF in my computer. I printed mine out, and I'm looking at blank lines of paper. I put nothing down on it at all. So if I, if whatever I say now is going to be in, 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 in improvisation. Like you, I don't read primarily fantasy, but there's fantasy that just is unavoidable because it's so important. And uh, yeah. one of the novels this year, is, I'm, but by this, I mean novels that make news because of what they are or who they are. I'm thinking of Piranesi specifically. Yeah, yeah. People had been waiting for a decade to see what Susanna Clark did. I think they'd given up. But and what she did was not what anyone was expecting. No. I mean, what I was going to say was, I mean, part of the reason that I've not read a lot of fantasy this year is because of my year's best, so I'm reading more science fiction. And I'd also sort of say, like, my impression of fantasy to the extent that it's a relevant thing to have before we walk into this is that it is, as always, incredibly vibrant and changing, but that my own interests still, I mean, I've got five novels I've listed out, don't tend personally to the epic fantasy, which puts me outside of, of a whole core range of fantasy readers. Piranesi, which is a fabulous book and would make my ballot as well and is up for the nebula, um, certainly isn't an epic fantasy. At best, it's a fantasy that's loosely in the Gormenghast school of fantasies or something. Out of If it's a fantasy at all. If indeed. If indeed. For me, that certainly would make my ballot. Mm -hmm. So would Alex Harrow's The Once and Future Witches, which I've been talking about ever since it came out, and which mm -hmm. I think is a, a wonderful, vibrant, interesting novel and well worth you know sort of nominating. Um, I would agree with that. And we agreed last year on her first novel as well, didn't we? Ten Thousand Doors January, which absolutely deserved its nomination. Um, but it's like it's like it's just an interesting year. It's like um, I don't know what else you're you're looking at. I mean, I've got like four fantasies and a horror novel. I don't think we can overlook The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, which is both a bestseller and one of the standout books of the year of any kind. It certainly belongs to the world. Right. Ballot. There's oddities which could be here. There's Alec Phoebe's book, uh, More Due, which isn't on my ballot, but I don't understand it wasn't other people. Uh, there's Livy Tidhar's fabulous Arthurian gang novel by Force Alone, which is, would make my ballot. And Joe Abercrombie's Trouble with Peace. Yes, which I Abercrombie would be on my list as well. Anything else on your? Uh, one of the things that hmm? on, 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 on my uh, novel list, I don't ha like. I say I haven't put it together yet. One question that comes up because I think it's almost inevitably going to end up on the ballot is N.K. Jemison's The City, City We Became, which just won the British Science Fiction Award. I think it was today. Which yeah. Just today won the British Science Fiction Award, which I thought was interesting because my sense, and it may be completely wrong, is that the British Fantasy Awards are a very different thing from yeah, the British Science so. Fiction Award. That's my impression. Too. I don't think you can read. I don't, you, the City We Became is, by any standard, a fantasy novel. Sure. And there's not a so it, it, it's and it's not it's not Jemison's first fantasy novel. It's a lot of fun. And it probably will end up on my list of five if I ever get around to making that list. But what else is on your list? Well, that is my list. I gave you my five. Okay. <laughs> not, Let me, not, uh, not to wrong. This is complete improvisation as I go down the list of things that I actually reviewed last year. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I mean, I will say probably Mike Harrison's novel from last year was in the running. Uh, you know, uh, in the, the Sunken Land Shall Rise. So the sunken land begins to rise again. The sunken land begins to rise again. Yeah, that would have been. Uh, I would. Uh, I, I would have. Uh, I would include comet weather probably because it 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 met. It was a sequel to uh, 
to the novel, which I loved last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I was, the, a, I was uh, a big fan of Garth Nix's book, The Left-Handed Booksellers of London. Right. You've already mentioned um, uh, By Force Alone. Uh, there's uh, a couple of novels that, well, a novel which probably won't be on my list, um, but I have an inordinate fondness for it, was Gene Wolfe's last novel, yeah. uh, Interlibrary Loan. Uh, and I think it's in keeping with what it was. It's again, it's a sequel to a borrowed man. Uh, it's not really readable as anything other than, well, there's a science fiction element in it. I guess you can read it as a kind of, um, there was a Joe Walton historical fantasy, which for people who love Shakespeare and love Florence would have been the candy bar of the year. Uh, and it's beautifully done. Um, the, I'm, I'm, I'm just Scrolling down and looking at some other things, Piranesi, one novel which has gotten a lot of attention and which I think has deserved it uh, is R.B. Um, Lemberg's The Four Profound Weebs. Yeah, not read it, but yeah, I've heard good things. And it's, uh, again, it's, it's a tachyon book, and it's the kind of thing which I'm noticing more and more novels. Not It's been this way for years about story collections and so forth, but more and more novels are coming out from small presses. I mentioned the Liz Williams, which is from Newcon Press. This is from Tachyon, but it's really a sensitive. Uh, it, 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 it deals with um, fluid sexuality, but it deals with all kinds of queer issues, which are terrific to deal with. From my point of view, it has two protagonists who are beyond middle age, which is, for some reason that I can't explain, becoming a hobby horse of mine in my old age. <laughs> Can I mention actually a book that I've not read, but I heard brilliant things about, which if I had time to read, I would re- probably recommend and which I may try to find time to read if I can. And that's uh, Darcy Little Badger's Elatso, which I've heard about that spectacular as well. things said about it. So, you know, just, I just didn't have time to get through it in 2020. So uh, I, I know it was reviewed well and is very, 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 very highly thought of. So that would be in my space. And also we are overlooking, I just realized Sylvia Moreno Garcia had her highest profile book, I think, of her entire career so far in Mexican Gothic and had an outstanding year and is a worthy nominee for both Best Novel and probably uh, Best Professional for her work at The Dark. I have a couple of other possibilities, one of which is a writer I'm very fond of. And again, the same I've already mentioned him in terms of the Life Achievement Award. Christopher Priest had a novel out called The Evidence, a kind of police procedural that takes place in his imaginary landscape which I suppose if you want to read it as science fiction, you can do that. But, you know, time shifts at unexpected intervals in different places according to where you are. Uh, ghosts appear. All sorts of things happen in that are, that are fantasy novels. And um, even though I didn't read a lot of dark fantasy, as they call it, and once uh, one time Ellen Dadlow very coherently explained to me that dark fantasy is not the same thing as, uh, as horror. But what I would consider as one of the strong dark fantasy novels of the year would be Sam Miller's The Blade Between, mm-hmm. uh, which is a ghost story. I mean, it, it, it's a vengeful ghost story, but it's also a uh, kind of Stephen King small town. Uh, it's, 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 it's a very angry uh, but powerful book. Um, and it's very much unlike Sam Miller's other work uh, for those people who are familiar with uh, So anyway, there's a lot of books to, to consider then. You know, I mean, you're going right. to, let, let, let me ask you your process from here. We've got, we've mentioned 20 or 30 novels, I'm sure. Uh, and I've got mm-hmm. a rough list of five that are penciled into my ballot that I won't send off for a while. Do you actually have time in your life to go and read any of these things and reconsider them uh, these days to go onto your ballot? Or is it all done from memory? 
Well, I have a slight advantage. If I've read it, the chances are I've reviewed it. So I can go back and look at what I said uh, and, uh, and, and sometimes go back and actually look at the novel itself. There are novels that draw me back in. I mean, one of the things I find absolutely haunting about Peronesi is that I want to read it again, just seeing how it fits together. It's like, have you ever put together a really nice jigsaw puzzle and you're proud of yourself when the last piece goes in and you've and then, then you kind of want to take it apart in case you didn't put it together the right way. Yeah, that's the way I feel about some novels like that. <laughs> well, I, I'm, what I'm aware of is, I mean, like my reading, as I say, is a te- actually these days it used to be uh, different in the past. A terrible metric for something like the world. I read, I slant towards science fiction reading, and there's always something else where you sit and go, "Damn!" But I didn't read such and such. So how could I possibly know? I haven't read either of C.L. Polk's two novels this year, right? And I really mean to. Of our last year, I ha- you know I have them. It's on my you know it's a thing thing to do, but you know I don't know, and I'll try. So there's that. Okay, I don't know if we're going to go through categories from here or not, but I've got a few things that I am going to be nominating generally. Do you want to go through categories or just touch on a few things? Well, I tell you what, we can do. If you've got things in categories, I can. Uh, again, when I come down to things like short fiction and novellas, I'm. And everybody should keep this in mind, filling out the ballot. You're not expected to have read everything. No. You're not expected to uh, be able to name. You, you don't have to compare the novel that you like with a novel that you haven't read. And you, and the same thing's true with novellas, because as we go down the list uh, to novella and short fiction, I've read more novellas that were standalones or novellas that might have appeared in an anthology. Mm-hmm. And when we get to short fiction, uh, you're in much better shape than I am. So well, maybe, except of course, net, lest you, lest you ever forget, dear friend, this is the point where I had made a strong decision to read much, much, much more science fiction than fantasy. So when I found well, fantasy, true, I skipped it. Is now all that's right. True. So I deliberately skipped the fantasy. When I came across an anthology that was all fantasy, I typically didn't open it because I had too many other things to read. But my okay, my favorite novella for the year sort of fits which would be Toshi Onyabuchi's Riot Baby. Riot Baby. That would which is a we've talked about it again and again on the podcast so we probably don't need to detail what it is and what it's about but as a standout I read it in January of 2020 and it's just as fresh now as it was then which is possibly the best metric you can have for the excellence of something you know. Well, I think that's true, and there are a couple. Okay, let me throw out one which you probably won't mention because I think you edited it, uh, which was the uh, the K.J. Parker Prosper's Demon on my list as well. Yes, loved that one. But it's just terrific, and and, and there's just there there is no other voice in fantasy now that sounds like uh, K.J. Parker, uh, and it's yeah. cynical and profane and so forth and so. And this is a really uh, awful character. Oh, so do you have another one? Yeah, I've got several. But I mean, I, I would probably mention um, the Tindalos asset by Caitlin Kiernan, which is the third uh-huh. in the Tinfoil Hat dossier. I think she calls it, which follows on from uh, Black uh, Helicopters and Agent of Dreamland, which I really, really, really liked, and also edited. So that's you know, sort of caveat, but I really, really liked it. Um, how about you? What else? Uh, one that I really loved, and and it, this this is simply because of the quality of writing, not terribly original, not, not the originality of the premise. It's Jeffrey Ford's Out of Body. It's, yep. it's a novel about out of body experiences, and it has all kinds of supernatural. But it's just beautifully written. Yes, um, 
And it was certainly one of my favorite novellas of the year. And it's one that one of those ones that sticks in mind uh, very much. If I went back and read it today, I'd be just as happy with it. One that's sure. firmly established itself in the sort of recognition it's getting so far as on my list. Talked about it before. Uh, P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout, which I think right. belongs on this list. And in fact, I'll be quite, I'll be honest. If Ring Shout and Riot Baby aren't on the final list, I will be deeply taken aback. I'll be very, very surprised. But they're on my list as well. I would be shocked at that as well, uh, because again, these are stories where there's no, there's not really much argument that this is uh, not only fantasy, but it's a kind of reinvention of fantasy in both cases. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I also edited I also edited the Order of the Pure Moon uh, Reflected in Water by Zen Cho, which I love and which I think belongs on the ballot. Uh, others, you know, mileage may vary, but it was one of the highlights for me. I was a highlight for me because it's. Uh, well, I mean, would would people regard that as too much fun? I mean, it's kind of a it's kind of a, a zucchini. How to be fun and make the list? <laughs> right, exactly. This is uh, it, it, it used to be. It's not. It's not that it's a comic novella, mm-hmm. but it is in a way. I mean, you you basically have a uh, a, a, a kick ass nun with a band of uh, who joins a band of bandits and manages to basically outsmart all of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's 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 a philosophical. When you say wuxia, when I was reading it, I not looked at a lot of uh, anime or graphic novels in that that tradition. I'm aware of the tradition because of the movies, but reading it from my aging perspective, it reads like a classic western. And a lot of wuxia, of course, is drawn from classic westerns when you go back to Kurosawa movies and that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun for me too. Uh, that's about all I had in the novella category I, that I've been of, able to think. Well, okay, you, you mentioned okay. the Four Profound Weaves by R. B. Lemberg, which of course is a novella, not a novel, so that would be a strong mm. novella candidate. Um, I would also point out Fly Away by Kathleen Jennings, which was a stunning right. piece of work, and a book with, uh, one which is going to fall in an odd place because of how it's published and whether people realize it's actually, a, in fact, a novel and not a um, novella is C.S.E. Cooney's debut novel, The Twice Drowned Saint, which appeared as part of the Sinister Quartet anthology. And you know, that deserves consideration and recognition in all of this. Well, that, uh, in fact, uh, makes me think of, wait a minute, um, one, one, one novel which I certainly should have mentioned, or novella, which I should have mentioned earlier, uh, because we gave it the uh, Crawford Award earlier this year, was Niveau's The Empress of Salt and Fortune. Mm-hmm which turned out to be the first. It's not, uh, she had two novellas out in the yes. year, both set in the same universe, uh, of which this was, I believe, the first. Um, and again, it's one of those things where you, you look at a novella and think, uh, here's an interesting new writer, which I did, uh, and it's an excellent novella. It's beautifully written. And then the next thing she does, which we will probably talk about in some future podcast, is a version of The Great Gatsby called The Chosen and the Beautiful, mm-hmm. which is... Um, Completely different, uh, completely steeped in Fitzgerald's original novel, and she, so this immediately this is a fascinating writer. Uh, I love being surprised by a writer who I like with the first thing out of the gate, and then the second thing out of the gate is nothing like it at all. True, very true. I'm going to skip talking about short fiction for the moment, not because there aren't ca- uh, candidates, but because a disproportionate number of my nominees come from the Book of Dragons. From your own book? Yes. Well, yes. Uh, and ones which, you know, stories which actually I can tell you in the background, I'm not allowed to tell you which ones are getting picked up for years bests and all that kind of stuff. So um, very, I mean, you know, 
I feel let, let other people talk about that. Probably that yeah, the, the category. I mean, but that, yeah, what are you going to say? Oh, no, I was going to say, does that mean we go on to collection? We can go on to collection. Absolutely. Because I've got five candidates and the one that should win. So uh, okay. what do you got? I, I don't even know yet. Okay. I haven't gotten this these, far. These my are my, list. well, this is what I have. Um, I mentioned, well, actually, there's Ken Lou's The Hidden Girl and Other Stories, which I think is a strong oh, book, yes. though not okay, as that's, that's strong as, as his first, uh, but still a very worthy nominee and is on my ballot. There's also The Best of Jeffrey Ford, which actually came out at the very, very, very beginning of 2020, having been delayed from 2019. And honestly, I, I think there's one point where every collection Jeff had ever put out had won the World Fantasy Award. So uh, there's no doubt that the best of Jeff Ford deserves to be on the list. Similarly, in a retrospective space, there's Setting the World, Selected Stories 1970 to 2020 by M. John Harrison, which from oh yes, of course. Which from my money has one of the worst covers of an of a collection I saw all year, but still is a spectacular book. And then there's the book that should win. And I'm gonna if this doesn't get on the ballot, I'm going to be deeply cranky Gary. Robert Shearman's three volume We All Hear Stories in the Dark. A landmark collection, a landmark achievement, a landmark thing. Um, I'm tempted. And an enormously yeah. courageous undertaking as well. No, it's say. not a courageous undertaking. It's an insane it's undertaking. A, you're asking. It's, it's, it's what, three volumes, a hundred stories, all original. Yes. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing achievement in that sense. Uh, but And I, I, I love Rob Sherman's work, and, and he's, he's a terrific guy. But he's, he's not as widely known as he should be. No. And he's asking a lot of readers who have maybe read a few stories by him or maybe going back, seeing his Doctor Who work, he's asking him to read 100 stories. <laughs> yes, he is. And it's, it's structured. I mean, this is why, in fact, I will be, weirdly enough, double nominating it. I'll be nominating it for Best Collection and for Best Professional Achievement. I think that's a clever idea. I think it's worthy uh, I mean, in both not, categories. I've not seen, going back, I've, I've not seen the book. I've, I've, I've read a, a fair amount of, of, of Rob's work. I have no doubt that it's as you describe it. I just hope it's uh, been made available, at least to the judges, if it hasn't been seen by enough uh, nominators. I hope so. I mean, this is one of those things, actually, we should, so, if you've made it 50 minutes into this episode and you have had any work published in 2020 that you think could possibly be eligible, get onto your publishers or whatever else and try to make sure that they're sending the stuff to the judges so they can consider it. Our ballots are great, but really you want them to be considered by the judges. If they don't have access digitally or in print or whatever they require, uh, then you have no chance of getting your work considered in this light. And, you know, it's important. It's worthwhile. I mean, Rob has won for Best Collection before, but this is this is not something we've seen the like of before. You know, no, who, who who published who published this the, is uh, this is Pete Crowther's PS Publishing, and actually one of my best professional achievement nominees for 2020, 2021, whatever you want to call it, is Pete for PS Publishing. Um, I would totally agree. They have that. rolled out a whole bunch of extraordinary objects in twenty twenty. I mean, they did the three volume We All Hear Stories in the Dark, which is a landmark achievement. They did a three volume. The Complete Rhinoceros, which uh, by Terry Dowling, which is an interesting piece from Australia. They did a batch of interesting novellas. They did, I think, Angela Slatter's collection. Uh, the heart is, uh, I forget, not in front of me, but her collection. Um, they did, I think, a Janine Webb novella. They did a whole bunch of other bits and pieces during the year. Absolutely deserve the recognition. Now, by that light, so too does my good pal William Schaefer and his Subterranean Press, who always are an, uh, an outstanding independent publisher and put out some great books during the year and 2020 has been an exception and in fact 
Bill is on also on my best anthology ballot for his Subterranean Tales of Dark Fantasy three. Oh yeah. Um. Well, you, we're we're we're, we're on to collection special award preference. Well, you, now, well, well, do you have anything to add for collection? Well, yeah, of course. The Book of Dragons is, is well, that's anthology. I mean, this You're is collection. Oh, collections. Okay, collections. Um. Uh, I don't know if I've got anything to add to what you said. Uh, Chris, no, when Christopher Priest had a retrospective collection, which is very much worth looking at. Which is at. not eligible because it came out the year before in the UK. It came out the year before. Oh, in the UK, that's right. It was only out in the, in the US this year. Uh, so apart from that, I'm not sure that I've got any. Uh, well, there's the Heart of the for here. Sinners and Other Stories, which is the Angela Slatter PS publishing anthology or collection I mentioned before. And Mike Swanwick had a collection out there, The Post Utopian Adventures of Dargan and oh, Surplus. Yes. The Post Human Adventures of Dargan and Surplus. I will put that on my list. Yep. Now, then there's anthologies, which you were segueing into, Gary. Well, I was segueing into, and it's a, you, 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 you can just leave the room if you'd like sure, and sure. not listen to this part. But it seems to me that the anthology that is inevitable for the. Uh, for, for a pure fantasy anthology that explores all the varieties of fantasy and has stuff in it that's very funny, it's called The Book of Dragons. Uh, and not only that, but I'm going to nominate your cover artist for, for Artist of the Year. And internal artist as well, yes. Ravina Kai uh, has, yes, is on my ballot. Uh, I totally, totally would endorse that as a suggestion. Ravina's fabulous. I mean, I will say I did not, my anthology, which I'm proud of, is not the only fine fantasy anthology of the year. The Vandermeers delivered another of their enormous books, the mm. the staggeringly large book of modern fantasy uh, from Vintage, which is, as always, smart, thoughtful, international in focus, inclusive, surprising, interesting, worth it. Um, and I also, uh, Ellen Datlow had a fine anthology, Final Cuts, and Patrice Caldwell, mm-hmm. Caldwell's A Phoenix Must Burn was was great as well. So it's not a bad year for an anthology. It's never, never a bad year. Uh, no, uh, although one of the things that always comes up in, when I'm thinking about this, you mentioned the Vandermeers, for example, is balancing original anthologies versus reprint anthologies, because sometimes yeah. uh, a, a, a classic reprint anthology, a kind of definitive anthology, I don't think the book of modern fantasy is, is quite that, but, but when they did the big book of science fiction, which yes. is the, big, the beginning of the series, uh, that was kind of like a definitive rethinking of the history of science fiction. It's an important book in critical ways, but at the same time, it was not even intended to show us the state of science fiction today. And the Brick Book of Modern Fantasy is essentially a historical anthology. It doesn't look at the fantasy as written today. It looks at what's happened, I believe, in the post-World War II era. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like, do you have anything else? I mean, I've touched on my, my professional category, but do you have anything else? At this point, uh, I've not given much thought. Okay, the one category I don't understand, uh, and I, I, I'm embarrassed to not understand it because I have one of these awards, is non-professional. Uh, I know I'm unprofessional. <laughs> I've been told that by people throughout my career, but I don't know how you nominate somebody for an award for it. It's always a little fuzzy. The way I always understood it was the difference was the people doing the work didn't derive their main income from it. So professional people who derive their main income non-professional don't and you might say well how do i know and you're going beats the hell out of me ah okay uh so well you've already mentioned a couple of professionals and publishers are obvious candidates Mm -hmm. for this um editors are such as yourself are obvious candidates for this um and in some cases yeah in some cases editors and publishers are the same person you mentioned pete crowther for example yeah 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 um 
So outside of that, I mean, one year it was given to, uh, what's her name, who had edited the book of the month, the science fiction book club forever. Yes, Ellen Asher, Um, I think, yeah. Ellen Asher. And once I realized what she had done and how long she had done it, I thought, of course, but be honest, she had just been a name that I'd known for years. So so what fascinates me about both the professional and non-professional awards is that uh, I think to nominate, if if you don't have people that you're familiar with, it's worth a little bit of research to, to to think about before making nominations, because there are people out there, long-term editors. I mentioned Beth Meacham, for example, who I think may have been on the ballot before, um, but who was a significant editor at Tor for a long time. I mentioned her even as a life achievement candidate. Um, I'm trying to think of what other publishers. Tom Doherty got a life she achievement did, award yeah. some years ago, I believe. Um, Betsy Walheim got one. So publishers have been... Uh, presented with the award more than a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it does happen, absolutely. So publishers get them, editors, so you could turn around and say maybe you, you were going to, uh, you might nominate, um, as, as in fact, as I mentioned earlier on, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia and Sean Wallace for editing The Dark. You could uh, look at the editors of Nightmare magazine. You could, in fact, look at, say, Andy Cox at Black Static, who's currently winding up Black Static, uh, who I'm sh- sure would be a worthy nominee. There's a whole bunch of people. Well, the number of websites yeah. and webzines and online zines I know, and, and canny. I mean, last year, uh, the uh, World Fantasy Award non-professional, I believe, went to Fafnir, which is a yes. an academic a collection of academic essays from uh, from Norway nor, or Northern European. It's not all about Norse Norwegian fantasy. Indeed. Uh, so there are, thi- there are things, and I, I was, again, aware of that as a title. Uh, I wasn't really... Uh, familiar with it i think i don't know did Faya win an award i not think yet. it was nominated for not yet okay. in fact not yet. someone who asked right. about this on facebook suggested that fire Connet, which they held during the year might be a something worth recognizing in best professional achievement or best non-professional or something so that's a possibility too oh. there are many things lots of things to consider but our time is running out and we will c- touch on this again are we, do we have any categories we haven't hit at all? No, we have okay, we mentioned artist. artists. We, we mentioned yeah. one candidate for best artist in Ravina Kai. I've got two or three. I mean, I think Greg Ruth has done some great covers. Did the cover for um, the KJ Parker novella you liked. Sean Tan's done some uh-huh. fabulous work this year. Um, well, a whole bunch of stuff. But yeah. Oh, I, I, just whining again as a reviewer that uh, that you're responsible for taking care of. I don't see very many covers because I'm getting increasingly either e-copies of books or ARCs that don't have covers on. Yep, that's how it goes. Um, and when I when I saw, for an example, I mean, th- th- this is a complaint that means nothing to anybody. When I saw the finished copy of the Book of Dragons, and the, the ARC was not bad looking. No. And by the way, the same thing's happening with, um, uh, with the um, uh, novel that's coming out uh, – uh, honeycomb. Oh, uh, with the Joanna the, Harris book. With, with Joanna Harris book. With all the Charles okay, Vessart. With Charles Vessart, when when the arc was done, Charles hadn't even finished doing the arc. My point is that when you're looking at things like art or even book design, and book design design is something that has not been considered, but it's 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 a thing. There's a huge difference between arcs and finished copies. I did not realize how gorgeous the Book of Dragon was until I saw the finished copy. Yeah, it's it, it's it's something I'm very proud of, I'm very grateful to Ravina and to Harper for. And I have no doubt that Honeycomb is going to be one of the collectible art objects. In addition to it's a lovely story and it's a lovely collection of stories, really. But it's it's a real interaction between art and uh, uh, and, and text in a way that. Uh, that only a finished book can present. So uh, my, my complaint is that 
if you're going to do interesting text plus art books, Kindle is not your friend. Well, no, no. Anyway, that's the World Fantasy Awards. We will nominate. We'll talk about nominations when they come out. Who knows? There's a trillion to one chance we will we will sit in Montreal in a hotel room and and re- good God, record a podcast at a convention, Gary, at the same place. Oh, uh, we haven't. When was the last time we did that? I don't know. I don't think we even did many when we were in Baltimore last time, which is the last World Fantasy we were together for. We didn't. Did we do any in Dublin at all? I don't know. Did. I think we were all like running around. Maybe we did. I'd have to go back and look. I think we were sort of like this whole recording thing. No. So we will have to look and we will, if, if, if we, if we get there, we will talk to, talk to people. We will, we will po- cast our pod in person. It sounds vaguely terrible now, but anyway, but either which way will, we will at least have gotten to the end of an hour now and we'll promise to come back again soon. Maybe with guests. We'll come back. We have, we, we have a lot of interesting uh, books coming out in the next couple of months and, uh, and the interesting people to talk to. So, uh, let's plan on getting some guests and getting this thing rolling again. <laughs> let's see if we can. Well, we'll do our best. creeping at least, maybe. Uh, it's, it's a busy crawling. Month. It's a busy month, and people are doing their taxes, and I've got taxes to do. It's all hard. Anyway, but for now, as always, this has been until 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 the next time. Then this has been the Code Street Podcast.